Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo. Uh, this morning, we are wrapping up uh, our Minor Prophets series. So we've, last couple weeks, hit Haggai, Zechariah, and then this morning we'll hit Malachi. So uh, as we were in Haggai, something interesting happened. God's people were sinning. Uh, they were building their own houses instead of focusing on his temple. And God called them to repent. And the crazy thing is, they actually did. They actually repented and built the temple that God wanted them to build. And they had a couple of godly leaders in Zerubbabel and Joshua. And, uh, and so it's like, okay, maybe things are looking positive for God's people. And then you get into Zechariah. We hit that last week. Stephen hit that, did a great job. Uh, wild book, flying scrolls and all of those things. But, but even in Zechariah, you're also hearing about these godly leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua and their lines and what, they're gonna, what God's gonna do through them. So it's like, okay, maybe God's people are gonna, are gonna get it and figure it out and, and honor God with their lives. And, and then we get to Malachi. And what happens? Well, I just wanna read for you One verse to start us off, to give you a taste of what was going on in the book of Malachi. So in chapter one, verse 10, God's word says this, and God specifically says this. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So God's people go from building a temple, repenting, honoring him, to now God's saying, shut the doors. So how did we get here? How did we progress to this point? Well, that's the the question we'll be answering this morning. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and start turning to the book of Malachi. Just go to Matthew and go left a bit. Uh, Quick historical context of Malachi. You have God's people who were in sin, and because of their sin, they were punished and judged by the nation of Babylon. But then Persia, the new world power, came and overtook Babylon, and so now they have the Israelites under their rule, and what they decided to do was actually let Israel go back to Jerusalem and build its temple, and essentially gave them some religious freedom, although they were still underneath uh, the Persian rule. So Malachi is around 430 BC. It's about 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah, and again, you would think things would be looking up for God's people, but it's actually quite the opposite. And uh, Malachi is going to show us this morning just how bad things had gotten with God's people. Let me just, let's dive in here. First three verses of Malachi. We're going to start with this. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. So the whole book starts off with this powerful statement from the Lord. I have loved you, but God's people in their arrogance and pride go, how have you loved us? Show me. And so God says, all right, let's go back to the book of Genesis and let's, let's talk about Abraham and Sarah. And then they have Isaac, who marries Rebecca, and then they have twins, Jacob and Esau. And God says, I chose Jacob. I loved Jacob. And essentially, the Israelites came through that line, Jacob or Israel. Now, you might look at that and say, 
well, that doesn't seem fair. Why did God hate Esau? Why did he choose or love Jacob? And why did he hate or reject Esau? And you could ask that question. I think the better question to ask is, how in the world could God love Jacob? If you read through the Genesis account, Jacob is manipulative, a liar, and both, both Jacob and Esau deserve punishment, but God chose in his love Jacob and the Israelite people. And because he chose them, their rightful response should have been worship, honoring God with their lives. So that's an important thing as we start off Malachi. You gotta understand God's love for his people. But then the second thing that I think we have to understand as we dive into this book is also in chapter one, and then it would be verse 11. So I'm gonna just unpack this, uh, and then we'll dive in more to the text. Verse 11 says, my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. Great verse to just underline in your Bible. God's name and his glory are at stake here. God is perfect and holy and he deserves wholehearted worship from his people. Do you believe God is holy? Do you believe he's worthy of praise? That we should fear him and be in reverential awe of our God. If you believe those things, if you believe that to be true, then you realize that anything shy of wholehearted worship defames God's name. So that's the context. God loves his people, God is holy, and his name will be made great. So in light of all of that, how do God's people respond? I wanna read a good chunk for us uh, in the book of Malachi. We're gonna read Malachi chapter one, verses 16 through 14 to understand what was going on in their town. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master, but if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. Here's verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you're profaning it when you say, the Lord's table is defiled and, and its product, its food is, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's a strong rebuke from God. 
Now I wanna ask the question, who's he directing this rebuke to? I don't know if you caught that in verse six. To you priests. He says it again, chapter two, verse one. For you priests. God is zeroing in on his priests because his priests were supposed to be the ones who were keeping the temple and sacrifices holy and honoring God with their lives and the way that they were going about what they were supposed to be doing. Listen to, uh, I think this is important. Listen to Leviticus 22 on what this should have looked like for the priests. All right, so when a man presents a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or flock, it has to be, listen to this, unblemished to be acceptable. There must be no, absolutely no defect in it. You are not to present any animal to the Lord that is blind, injured, maimed, or has a running sore, festering rash, or scabs. You may not put any of them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. That's what they were supposed to be doing. What were they doing? It's like the exact opposite. They were giving God their blind and lame goats and sheep. They were literally looking at their flocks and saying, hey, these are the good ones. Let's, like, let's keep these over here. Maybe we'll give one of those to the governor. I don't know. But let's, uh, like, let's take that one in the back. Yeah, the one with like three legs that doesn't walk. Yeah, bring it over. The one that doesn't see good. Yeah, just bring it over here with all the scabs. We'll offer that one to God. That's the one. It's a slap in the face to a holy God. That you couldn't get more offensive and defaming his name. And again, these were the priests, the ones supposed to be guarding this stuff. So what's God's response? Verse 10, we talked about it at the beginning. God's response is, shut the doors. I'm tired of this. You are offensive to me by what you're bringing to me. Stop it. Just, just sh- I wish you would just shut the doors. Be done with this. They no longer feared God. They no longer honored him. They no longer were worship- worshiping him with a whole heart. All of that was out the window and they brought these half-hearted animal sacrifices to the Lord. But it wasn't just the animal sacrifices. So we could give a lot of examples in Malachi, but let's go to chapter three, verse seven through nine. And God starts talking to them about their money. And, and God says, since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statues. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. So God's no longer focused on the priest. He's now zooming out and looking at all of the people. And God's primary concern is you're not giving the tenth uh, or the tithe that I commanded you to give. And you might ask, well, what's the big deal? Well, in that time, yes, all, all money's God's, but for the Mosaic law, they would, they would bring their offerings to God. And what that would do is that would fuel the ministry of the Levites and the priest so that they would honor God in his great name. So if you're not giving the tithes, everything goes sideways and it becomes a pretty big problem. And if you go in the Old Testament and you just read through, uh, like go through Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all, I mean, all these passages in the Old Testament share that God says, hey, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, a curse will be on your land. He could not make it more clear. Well, they were disobeying God and now there's a curse on their land. 
then now the interesting thing is God gives them a challenge. Check out verse 10. This is awesome. God says this, bring the full tenth or the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Try me. See if I will not be faithful to you. Repent and then blessing will come. The rain will come. Good crops will come back. Do you trust me? Now, I want to say this. Um, I, think, I think people might grab that verse, Malachi 3.10, and twist it a bit and say, oh, well, you see, if, we give our, if I give my money to God, he'll make me rich, right? He'll just open up the floodgates and then in comes all the financial resources. That's just how it works. I just want to say, you got to note when we talk about Malachi 3.10, the context of the passage. What's the context? God's people are in sin and he's calling them to repent, It's not, hey, give me money so I can make you rich. It's they were in sin. He was calling them to repent, saying, I will provide for you. That's that's not what this verse is saying. And you guys know, if you know the life of Jesus, that's not what Jesus says. He actually offers the opposite. Take up your cross and follow me. Suffering will come in this life for eternal glory later. Sure, we might get blessings in this life, and some of them might be financial, but we can't connect these dots too strongly because God is saying, repent of your sin and I will provide I promise. But the Israelites and their attitude was the opposite. They were just just as bad as all the generations before them. You thought you saw a glimmer of hope in Haggai, not the case. In verse six, that whole father-son, master-servant relationship, they threw it out the window. They were still offering these sacrifices to God, but their hearts were far from him. They had forgotten to fear and honor the great name of the God that they worship and they serve. So that's the Israelite people. So the question becomes, well, what does this mean for us today? Because we don't really offer animal sacrifices, right? That's not part of our Sunday service. That'd be a little odd. Um, But on the other side of the cross, that's not what we do. So, well, what does this look like? Well, I would argue that we still offer up sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Think of Romans 12, one through two. Offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Offer up your life as a spiritual sacrifice. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, I think one of the ways that looks like is it's to die to yourself and to sacrificially love others around you, to help those who are in need. And I actually, I had a really awesome example of this that happened the other week. Um, So we had a couple, couple weeks ago, a windstorm through Cedar Fault. Boy, if you missed that, you're living under a rock. But there was a windstorm that came through right, a handful of Thursdays ago and uh, it knocked down a bunch of branches. And I was in the middle of sermon prep and got a call from someone in our church family saying, hey, I just had this huge branch go down in my yard. I don't know what to do. Is there anyone, you know, at Candaya with some chainsaws that could help? And I, I said, yeah, I'll, I can start asking around. And I didn't even get to start asking around. I was still sermon prepping when I got a call from Jordan Porter and it's, this is such a God thing. And he goes, hey, Jordan, uh, do you have any branches down at your place? I go, I mean, some limbs, but, but uh, not really much. What's up? And he goes, well, me and some buddies, are, we're driving around with a, a truck and some chainsaws and just seeing if anyone needs help. I was like, yes, go to Mindy's house and go help her out. So uh, I actually got a couple pictures. Mindy took a couple pictures of what happened. So there's the massive tree that fell uh, and them cutting it up for her. Uh, maybe go to the next one. And... 
take us like two looks at like a second look at this one. That guy lost the rock, paper, scissors, like who gets to catch the tree thing. Um, but like, okay, so they cut it all up. She's got probably seven years worth of firewood there. You burn one of those for like 48 hours. Uh, but that's, I look at that and I hear the story and, and what Mindy shared with me and how she was so touched by what they had done. And I thought, that, that is the spiritual sacrifice that is honoring to the Lord. Dying to themselves and whatever they had going on that day, driving around with a truck and chainsaws, calling some pastors saying, how can I help? I thought, yeah, that's awesome. So, actions. Now, what about other things in our life. So not only are you on mission with your eyes open serving those around you, what about serving your household, your, mar- your spouse and your marriage and your kids? We don't have time to get into Malachi 2, but God addresses marriage in Malachi 2. Are you self-sacrificially loving your spouse in your home? Is that true of your life? Not only that, but uh, is your praise, your singing, your song is that, a, is that a fragrant offering to the Lord? Is it wholehearted worship or is it hands in the pockets? I guess I'm just gonna cross this off the list and go back home onto the rest of my day. What, is your praise a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord? And then finally, like Malachi talk, talks about, is, is the way you handle your money a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord? Now we talk about money, right? And if you're uncomfortable talking about money, you're just, you're going to be uncomfortable around the person of Jesus when you read through the gospels because he talks about money more than just about anything else outside of the kingdom of God, because he knows it's a trap for us as humans, right? And I remember for me when I had that light bulb moment, when I thought, oh, okay, so all, all money is God's. I'm just called to steward it. And one way I can honor God with my money is to give generously of it. That's I just remember having that like light bulb moment. It's all God's money anyway. So my call is to give my first and my best. Is that true of your life? A couple quick examples from our church family. Again, people who I believe are living a spiritual sacrificial life in this way. I was meeting with a member a little while ago and he was sharing with me that he said, hey, for me and my family, we decided we're gonna draw a line in the sand and everything that comes in, not just our monthly income, but every little ancillary income that comes in, we're given, I think he said, I think it was the 10% mark. We're gonna give 10% away. Every little thing. I've just made that decision for a family. I'm like, that's awesome. That challenges me. I love that stuff. Uh, or on top of that, there was a need within our, our uh, connection group world. And, and, and someone in the connection group had a need and, and the connection group saw that need and said, hey, let's pool some money together and, and fill that need for that person. And they did it in a very, it's just awesome how it all came together. But I look at that and I think God has to look at those things and go, yes, that honors my name. That honors my name. These are examples of wholehearted worship but I wanna ask the question of what are areas in your life where you may be giving half-hearted worship, empty sacrifice or praise? Let's, let's ask the hard questions. Are you, are you bored with God? Are, are you more excited with the things of this world than the things of God? Do you bargain with God? Hey God, I'll give you this, I'll give you some of this as long as I can keep some of this or you give me some of this. You treat God like he's a vending machine. Are these things true of your life? Because I look through the Bible and I look at my life 
And Cody said this in our elder meeting, but he goes, you, you just, you can't look at the Bible in our lives and anytime that we give just a portion to God, it never just seems to end well. Like in the Bible or whatever, when it's like, I wanna withhold something for myself, it never ends well. So ultimately, in the book of Malachi, God's love and his great name, that foundation should drive us to repent of any half-hearted worship in our lives. When we walk a life of half-hearted worship, we don't value God. And what he's saying is, I want all of you, the first and the best, not because God's arrogant or selfish, but because it glorifies his great name and he's worthy of that glory. And also it brings us joy in our life. Because if you haven't found out yet, if you start worshiping wholeheartedly the things of like money or marriage, those things will collapse around you. It doesn't lead to joy, it leads to destruction. Instead, put all of that worship on God who can and should bear all of that weight and worship. He's deserving of it. That's the life we should live. Man, if we, if we live a life on the other side of that, like the Israelites in Malachi, it just, it doesn't go well. I, let's just imagine for a second that, that we lived the lives, as a Candeo church, we lived the lives of the Israelites in Malachi. What would our church look like? I, I think it would be things like when, when there became a need within our church family, nobody threw up their hand in the air to say, hey, I'd be willing to help. Or marriages would, would start collapsing because sp- spouses would be looking inwardly, self-centeredly, not looking out for the interest of their spouse. Or worship, uh, Kendai would come in here and worship and it would it'd be pathetic. We'd, we'd have our hands in our pockets like, when is this over? When can I get back and mow my lawn? Check the next thing off my list. I'm checking this one off, God, I'm good, right? Or, or even like our money, right? What, what would happen if we, if we just said, hey, let's, let's close our wallets to God. And then all of a sudden we look around and we see the ministry around us here in the Cedar Valley and, and to you and I in that campus start to shrink and shrink. I believe God's calling us to a life very different from that. I believe God is calling us because of his great love and because of his great name to die to ourselves and to love others. To die to ourselves and look out for the interests of others, including our spouse and our kids and those around us in a way that would honor him to be authentic in our worship, to have energizing worship, the kind of worship that that people are lining at the doors because they can't wait to come in and worship Jesus. That kind of energy and zeal, that's what God would love and delight in. Or with our money to open up our hands and to give generously, to continue the work that God's doing all across the Cedar Valley and you and I. And you guys did that recently with this Cornerstone or the Candeo Counseling Center that's coming up and that, that, that push in June, you guys gave generously. I I think God looks at all of that and says, yes, that honors me in my great name. Goes back to verse 11. His name will be made great. Will it happen through our lives? I think we have to remember and we can't forget, this is not about us. This is about God. And when we choose this life, it honors him. Uh, Unfortunately, the Israelites chose not to here in Malachi. And... uh, He gives a strong warning all throughout the book of Malachi and then gives kind of one last wake-up call at the very end here in chapter four, verse one. Let me read this for us as we close up Malachi. For look, 
the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. So you walk through Malachi, and you can read it on your own, uh, but chapter two and three, walking through infidelity and unrighteousness, and then it ends, and Malachi is very clear, judgment is coming. Let me just say, if, if you've walked through this whole Minor Prophets series and you've missed that, the theme of judgment, you've, you've missed one of the primary thrusts of these books. These, these books were called or, or were meant to be a wake-up call for God's people and for us today. Here was the problem, though. What the Israelites back then in Malachi's day, likely it, when they heard day of the Lord, what they were thinking was, well, we're good, right? We're God's people. So we're, we're gonna be safe on the day of the Lord. So really, like, who cares what we actually give God? Well, whatever goat it is, that one in the back, who cares? Like, let's give him that one because we're good. We're God's people. We're gonna be saved on the day of the Lord and the day of judgment. And Malachi here, I believe, is giving them a warning shot that many of them thought they were gonna be good on the day of judgment and instead, they're gonna be very disappointed and the day will look more like a burning furnace. Fast forward to the New Testament. God gives us today a very similar warning in Matthew 7. Let me read this for us, very sobering text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we... Uh, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Matthew 7 is saying that many of us are gonna look at our lives and the, the religious checkbox things we've done and say, we're good, right? And Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Living a life of half-hearted worship, going through the motions, checking off the I guess I went to church box, won't cut it on the day of judgment. Salvation is not found in a religious checklist. Salvation is found in relationship with Jesus Christ, surrendering to him, repenting, and turning to him. And for some of you this morning, maybe that's exactly what you need to hear that Malachi is the wake-up call that you need to hear when you start thinking about that day of the Lord. But for others of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what does Malachi say to us? Well, uh, I don't have time to fully unpack this. Chapter three, verses two through four, there is also a theme of, yes, there will be those who are consumed on the day of the Lord, but also as we walk this life, we will also be purified or refined. That language can be seen throughout the minor prophets. And for us as Christians, it is true that there is no condemnation in Christ. But that being said, we will continue to be refined with a refining fire until Jesus comes back. And let me just say what's true. That might mean some very hard seasons of life. Some very tough and potentially very painful situations. But our call as Christians is not to find our consuming center and the happiness of this moment, but just like Jesus on the cross, find our joy that's set before us in eternity in heaven with him.
So this book of Malachi, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, this is a tough one to read. There is a lot of warnings, a lot of hard truth. But then you ask the question, okay, so this wraps up the Old Testament. Well, how does it end? Well, how does, how does the book end? And you go to that last chapter, chapter four, and in verse four, he says, remember the instruction of Moses, so another exhortation, but then one last warning in the last verse, the last sentence, otherwise I will come and strike the land with a curse. God gives these rebukes and warnings all throughout Malachi. The last word of Malachi in the whole Old Testament, likely the last word spoken by God through a prophet to his people is the word curse. And then silence. These would have been the last words that the Israelites would have heard from the Lord for 400 years. But then 400 years of silence ends with a messenger. Listen to Malachi 3 verse one, who points forward to this messenger. It says, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord will... Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Malachi is not entirely doom and gloom. We get this glimmer of hope. Because ultimately what's true is as we, as we try to live wholeheartedly for the Lord, 100% perfectly, we will fail. Just like the Israelites failed, we will fail. We have failed, we will fail. We're humans, we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath for our half-hearted worship. It's just what's true. God is holy, he is perfect and we are not. But then a messenger comes, a messenger by the name of John the Baptist. And the job description of John the Baptist was, hey, your whole life point forward to the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, he will be the one who comes and does perfectly worship God every day and minute of his life. He will be the great high priest who will fully fulfill perfectly every law in the book of Leviticus, honoring the great name of his God. Think about that for a second. Jesus spent his whole life, wholehearted worship to the Father. There was not one second, not one fleeting moment of half-hearted sacrifice, of maybe I'll, I'll keep some of this to myself, give God the scraps. Not one moment in Jesus' whole life here on earth did he have that. So that means that 400 years of silence was ended by a savior who offered himself up as a living perfect sacrifice, as a spotless savior for you and me. So, okay, no, this is not a sermon of go out there and try harder. Just go out there and figure it out, good luck with the whole half-hearted sacrifices thing. This, this sermon is a refocus on God's love for us who is faithful to an unfaithful people. We are called to, in light of his holiness and his great, not, great name, purify our lives, to repent, to reorient our lives around him and keep him top priority, fearing and honoring his great name, to give him glory he deserves in potentially a fresh and new way. See God's love for you. See the sacrifice that was made for you and honor him with your life. Why? Because he is worthy of our sacrifice and our praise. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are grateful 
uh, for the cross and what it means for our salvation. Uh, We're grateful for your love for us, that you came for us, that, uh, Father, you sent a messenger for us who pointed the way to the person of Jesus Christ, the spotless Savior who is coming for us, living his whole life in wholehearted worship to save half-hearted worshipers like me. Jesus, we are grateful for the cross. We're grateful for salvation that comes through your name. And we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. So Jesus lived a life of wholehearted worship for half-hearted worshipers like you and me. And in the New Testament, we are called to remember through communion. And so if, as you were given uh, or picked up one of those communion cups on your way and you can take that out uh, and you can start opening up uh, to that piece of bread or that wafer. And communion for us is symbolism that Jesus's body was broken for us. And we remember they're taking of the bread. And so when you are ready, uh, you can take of the bread. And also, there's symbolism in communion as Jesus' blood was shed for us. And that blood was symbolized and is symbolized in communion through uh, the juice that we take together. And so when you're ready, you can remember what Jesus has done for you by taking of the juice. And as we transition back into worship and you stand in worship with us, I I just encourage you as as you kind of hear the song wash over you to to what are those things in your life that the half-hearted worship things that you go, yeah, that's, that's the stuff I need to repent of. That, that's the stuff I need to confess, ask for forgiveness from the Lord and repent of those things. I, I ask that you would do that uh, this morning. Uh, but right now, I'd encourage you to stand with us when you are ready and continue in worshiping our great King. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.